We talked a little bit about this uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and, and the idea that the book of Romans is possibly, probably the most uh, thorough, if nothing else, uh, treatise on theology that has ever been written. Uh, I love the way that Paul structures the book because he knows that, he knows that many of the things that he's going to be saying in the book are things that people are not going to like to hear, not going to want to hear. He knows that you're going to have all kinds of questions about those particular things. And so he anticipates the questions, and he actually gives us the answers right here in the book of Romans. There are people today who argue this, that, that theology is a subject that is for the academics, for the professionals, etc., etc., etc. But I just want to challenge us again with the idea that because the book of Romans, if for no other reason, the book of Romans is here in the Bible, it says this. It says that theology is for the masses. It's for every believer. The book is not addressed to the church leadership or to the elders. It is addressed to every believer in Rome. So there's a sense in which this book is addressed to each one of us too because God has put it here in Scripture. The lessons that are laid forth here for the Roman people, the Roman Christians, are lessons that we all need to hear. They're lessons that we all need to learn. We're still in chapter 1. We finished up last time with verse 17, which is maybe the most important verse in this whole Bible. Not just Romans, but certainly one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Well, we read this, for it is the righteousness of, in it, the righteousness of God is real. That's the gospel he's talking about is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. That the key to all of it is faith. Faith in God. Faith in Jesus Christ. It's understanding that I cannot save myself. Some of you tried to do that and you failed. Some of you are still trying to do that. And you know, well, guess what? You're still going to fail. You don't make the mark. You're never going to make the mark on your own. You're never going to come close to making the mark on your own. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. And, and the only Savior there is is Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do we gain the righteousness that God demands of every single one of us? It's not by our own doing. It's by the doing of Jesus. And we receive the righteousness of Christ through faith in him. That is the essence of the gospel that Paul preaches. That is the essence of the gospel that the church preaches. The righteous man shall live by faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Notice here that as Paul is beginning his presentation of the gospel, he doesn't start where a lot of people in the church today might. He doesn't say things like, God has a wonderful plan for your life. He says this. He says, there's a God in heaven who created you. And this God is angry. This God is wrathful. Because mankind as a whole has not received him. Has not accepted him. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I hope there's no one in this room that believes anything other than that. That every one of us is a sinner. We have a lot of things in common, but perhaps the most central thing that we have in common with everybody else that has ever breathed air is that we are sinners. When we think about wrath, we think about anger. Now, do you ever get angry? Let me ask you something. What drives your anger typically? Is it real righteousness? Or is it just that someone's done something or something's happened that you don't like and you're mad about it? Some people have a tendency thinking about God's wrath in that sense. And I want you to have the understanding that is not what is conveyed here at all. It's not just that God is angry. God is repulsed by it. He's revolted by it. It's something we need to be honest about, all of us. This is where the gospel begins. God is angry. God is wrathful. Because he abhors sin. And we are steeped in it. Up to our eyeballs. This is where Paul starts. 
this is where the gospel has to start. In an understanding of this reality that there really is a God and he really is ticked off. There's also this, that his wrath must be appeased. It has to be appeased. He can't be wrathful without an appeasement of that wrath. We just finished Revelation. We talked there about the judgment that was coming upon unbelievers. That would be the full measure of God's wrath poured out upon them. We know that believers do not have to fear this wrath. We need to consider it. But we know that on the Christ, on the cross, Christ received the wrath of God due to us for our sins. All of it. Every bit of it. Sins past, sins presence. Sin's future. Only those who know Jesus Christ have that protection. Everyone else will experience the wrath of God themselves. No exceptions. The wrath of God is revealed. Now, we're going to be talking about Revelation. We talked about the book of Revelation. What I'm talking about here is is God uses a number of mechanisms or, or, or means to reveal himself to us. Theologians very often separate those into two basic groups. One is what's called special or natural revelation. The other is called or that or called general or, or or natural revelation. The other one is called special revelation. Natural revelation is what Paul is talking about here. This natural general revelation. It's not addressed to any particular group of people. Uh, it's addressed to all people. In other words, what he's saying here is there's a manner, there's a mechanism by which God reveals himself to everybody. So that in the end, no one really will be able to say, I didn't know there's a God. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that there's ample evidence around us in this creation around us and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, means by which God has made available to us to show us, to prove to us that God really does exist. Now, when we look up into the sky and we consider and contemplate the extent of this universe, that we don't come to the conclusion that there's some natural process that took this the eternal substance of whatever manner or form it happened to be in, and that some natural process actually created this universe, and that life sprang from natural processes that were not controlled by anything or anybody other than these processes. How many times in your life have you seen anything come into existence out of absolutely nothing? 
Whammo, bammo. There wasn't a tree. Whammo, bammo. Now there is a tree. There was no automobile. Whammo, bammo. Now there is one. Do, does anyone here, have you ever concluded that those things just come into existence because of some natural process that's completely uncontrolled by any being? Understand that creation around us screams and cries for this creation to be demands, not suggests, not, not, not opens a possibility of, but demands that there be a creator. Because if you believe anything other than that, you believe that nothing has the ability to produce something. That everything that is came out of nothing. This is what's called natural revelation. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And when we look into the heavens, that we, it brings us to this understanding of how great and how mighty, how powerful this God is, that he can speak the words and stars and galaxies and a universe comes into existence out of nothing. This is the reason why in the day of judgment, no one will have the excuse of saying, I did not know. Because there is so much evidence around us that demands that there be a God. That no one has any ground to stand on who denies that. What he's saying here in verse 18 is that the wrath of God is revealed in the things going on in creation against this ungodliness and unrighteousness. In other words, the things that we look at and we see as being destructive forces and etc., etc., etc. That things like hurricanes and earthquakes, tsunamis, destructive forces in creation around us are demonstrations of the fact that God is unhappy with things the way they are. We studied the new heavens and the new earth, and those things disappear. There'll come a time in this earth when there will be no more hurricanes or any of these destructive forces that take place in nature. But what Paul is saying here is these things are demonstrations of just how angry God is. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Since the creation of the world is in invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made. 
This is what we call natural revelation. God has demonstrated his existence. He's revealed himself in creation. Sufficiently to render anyone and everyone who denies him without excuse. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. What better description could you have of the condition of the, the mental approach and state of so many people in this world today? There's so much stuff today that goes on in the realm of science that is speculation, but it's presented as science. I mean, just consider evolution. I read a, a book written by Richard Dawkins years ago. And in that, he described the situation in the United States as being that that, that what was going on in, in the classroom, science classrooms in America, was that, that, that creationism was being forced down the throats of, of everyone in those classes, in, in public schools, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let me tell you something. That's exactly the opposite of the condition I find. That is that God has been expunged from all of those books and all of those classes People have become futile in their speculations. You ever hear of the term pseudoscience? Pseudoscience means false science. I could take you in just about every single science textbook that I know of and show you examples of pseudoscience in those pages. Things that look like science, they smell like science, people conclude that they're science, they're in the science book, therefore they must be scientific. And let me just tell you, there's a lot of it there is no evidence for. It is people drawing unwarranted conclusions about things over and over and over again. One speculation is built upon another speculation, and they just get to be more grandiose as time goes by. Not factual, not scientific. Foolish heart was darkened. The crazy thing about it is this, is there's, an, there's another sense, uh, apart from what we've been talking about, where... People do understand there's a God. If you look at every culture down through the history of the world, you're going to find that there were people that worshipped. There's a sense in which every person that's ever lived has worshipped something or someone. 
And what I would say to you this morning is the biggest idol that we all have is ourselves. My biggest idol is me. I'm most concerned about me. I'm most concerned about what affects me. Whenever anything happens, the first thought that goes through my head is, how is this going to affect me? I'm hoping not I'm, all, I'm not all by myself. I'd imagine I've just described some of you for your, to you. In Isaiah, he paints this picture of how, how, how right ridiculous idol worship is. That some guy will go out into the forest and he'll cut down a tree. And he'll take some of the wood from that tree and he will use it to build something with maybe a table or a box or a house or this, that, or the other. He may take some of the rest of it and use it to light a fire so he can cook his food over it. And then he has a little bit left and what does he do? He takes it and he shapes it into some kind of a graven image, into the statue of something. And then he turns around and bows down and worships it. Isaiah goes on in in, in another place to talk about how these idols, they cannot speak, they cannot hear, they can't do anything at all. And yet they're worshipped by people. It's happened in every point of the history of the world. Idol worship has been around from the Garden of Eden. Because as we said before, ultimately the big problem that Adam and Eve had was they worshipped themselves rather than God. They put themselves before God. That's why they fell into sin. They were not willing to abide by his edict. They thought they knew better. They thought they understood. They thought they were going to explain it to God. We have their hearts. Every one of us. So what are your idols? You have them. There's not a person in this room that can say that they put God above everything else all the time. Nobody. I'll go further than that. I'll see. Nobody even comes close. And if you think you do, then you need to think more. Because if you're there, you're in a place that the rest of us are not. So what are your idols? <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> we can all relate to that one. You see, this is the one thing you'll find is when we start talking about this stuff, you'll find that the things that you struggle with typically are the things that other people struggle with too. We come to these places, it should always do some things for us. And one of those is to remind us of 
the fact that we are accountable to God and that we have sinned greatly and fallen short of his glory. They should cause, these thoughts should cause us to run to our Savior Jesus over and over and over and over again. Because we know that it's in him that he has already, not in the future, not in the time to come, he has already suffered the complete and absolute wrath of God for every sin that you have committed, you will commit from now on. You see, for believers, and only for believers, the wrath of God is a done deal. It's over. But for every unbeliever, it is yet to come. And they have no Savior. They will give an account to the God that they have mocked, the God that they have refused to acknowledge, the God that they have fought against and utterly and absolutely denied in everything they've done. They will answer to him for it. My friends, that is the root of the gospel. It's not something that comes later on down the road. It's not something that Paul puts in his gospel presentation near the end. He starts with it. That might be a good pattern for us to follow after. I mean, ultimately, this is what people need to hear. It's what we need to hear. Over and over again. So what are you going to do about your idols? Seriously. One of the first things we have to do is figure out what they are. So maybe we should do some thinking over the next week about what my idols really are and how those idols have kept me from Worshiping God to the fullest. Now they've actually diminished my life. Not enhanced it. And how they've been a very poor witness to the people around me that I'm trying to witness to sometimes. Throw them off. Throw them away. They're useless. 
They are worthless. They are rubbish. There's only one worthy of worship. The God who created you.